welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. 808 State come from an era when having a go was encouraged. Hits of the late 80s and early 90s like In Your Face, Cubic, Flow Coma and the chill-out classic Pacific State reflect a period in British culture where working-class kids could make alien instrumentals and have them go right to the top of the charts. The duo of Graham Massey and Andrew Barker are back with Transmission Suite, their first album in 17 years. Here they talk to Gabriel Zatton about rejecting cheap nostalgia, instead paying tribute to their hometown of Manchester by helping to keep its progressive edge sharp. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with 808 State is up next. Welcome to another of the Resident Advisor Exchange, this time with, as you just heard, 808 State. Um, I appreciate you guys have come down from Manchester today and have probably spent an afternoon answering fairly serious questions about your new work, so I'm going to start with a curveball to maybe break the ice. Um, The oceans are burning and humanity is being evacuated and there's only space to save either the Aphex remix of Flow Coma or the bicep remix up in your face. Which one do you go for to oh, the repopulate? A- the Aphex mix of Flocoma, yeah? I think. Can I have one on one side of a 12 and one I, on the I other? I did think you were going to say that, but no, I'm afraid there's not enough room in the in the spaceship. Oh, no. Um, I quite like the bicep remix, but I do like the Aphex twin remix. I can't decide. I'll just do an edit. I'll do a mashup and take it with me on a memory stick. Very astute answer. <laughs> When did the Aphex Twin remix come out? Was it about 2002 or something? A while like ago. That? Yeah, I mean, it still really stands up today. It, yeah, know, yeah. Considering it's that old, 17 years old. Yeah. Yeah, that would fit into my DJ set more than the Bicep one. Though, you know, I really appreciate the way that Bicep put it into their world in their way, you know. Um, I always saw In Your Face as being this huge dramatic thing, you know, and they're kind of. Um, I've turned it into um, a different kind of vibe, you know. So I guess I was puzzled by that when I first got it back. But, yeah, um, I expected it to come back as a massive banger and I was yeah. completely shocked by it. It was just like, what, what, what's gone on here? Yeah. But then when you listen to a bicep, you go, I get it. Yeah, in context, <laughs> yeah. it perfectly works. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's the thing with remixes all, all, all the time is like, we, I remember we used to get all these to, uh, when we were on Tommy Boy records in in the states. Uh, they always used to get our 
stuff remixed for the club scene in New York. And then we got taken there by our A&R guy and saw what that scene was, which was, you know, basically the gay scene in New York. And, uh, you know, of course our stuff wouldn't work there unless it got remixed specifically for that thing. And it, you know, so we've got a whole set of those remixes from the Tommy Boy era that is very genre specific. Until going there, we didn't understand. Yeah, we didn't it was like clue about that. confusion yeah. of every time a new remix would be handed to us. It's like, what are they doing here? Yeah. Until we actually got over there and you go, ah, it makes it's, sense it's now. It's a funny relationship, remixes. You know, you kind of have to give, give over to, you know, you have to shut your normal perceptions down. You know, so of, often you can be wrong. You know. The reason I asked about that first, because you've both already touched on things that we'll get into, the relationship that you have with your own music over time and also, I guess, that period where you're on Tommy Boy and you're kind of like firing on all cylinders with peak of your popularity. But the reason I mentioned Bicep and Aphex at the start was that that Bicep remix probably brought you back into the periphery of a lot of people my age and younger a few years ago who might not use a reference point but might not be aware of exactly what your sound was. And they, I don't think overplayed their hand i thought the remix was very well done it kind of merged parts of what you were doing with what they do and has become a staple and has you know millions of streams and i think that to me seemed to be when it wasn't just people paying tribute to you but bringing you back into the fold and alone is someone else who has done the same thing and i think you took out on tour with you last year so i want to know before we talk about the new record when you started noticing people of a generation below interacting with your work in the last few years and whether that spurred the new era of the project, did you realise there was a flame brewing that other people were kind of reigniting and it was time to come back and take hold of that situation yourselves? Uh, well, I, I, I think, I mean, we've both got sons who are both DJs and both of them say you know their age group they was listening to lots of our old stuff so you know there's quite a lot of young people that have switched on to what's happened in the past people they seem to know the music nowadays so it's all accessible because of the internet um but that that probably spurred us on a little bit to say you know yeah there's definitely a dialogue with our second generation you know we, when you live in the house with the boom 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 going up in the attic all the time you know i was uh trying to see if shazam worked down the chimney the other day actually <laughs> uh, it doesn't um but you know that dialogue that goes on in the house about um you know they'll be playing certain things it's like oh i remember this one kind of thing and and then you can you know perhaps suggest some other things and they're constantly we share a spotify actually so that's another way we just we share a space and share music that way and then and and that bicep remix definitely came through his playlist kind of thing it came came to me that uh that way of hear, hearing what they were doing and this was maybe five years ago or something probably longer than that yeah so that that dialogue is is somewhat in the context of the new album um uh, an energizing factor in um putting you back in a space where you know somewhat what's going on on, on the street level in, in Manchester particularly. This is what struck me, I guess, in the press release for the new record, which 
people listening now, I think it will have just been out. It's called Transmission Suite, in case you haven't clocked onto it. But yeah, you said, you know, it's inspired by the current state of the Manchester music scene, and you make um, references to Swing Ting, which was an interesting one to me, as well as Eyes Down. Eyes Down, who a club that would bring people like Pepe Braddock and Moody Man, which seems more in your wheelhouse, but Swing Ting yeah. are very much at the uh, new cutting edge of the kind of mixed up British and African and Jamaican Caribbean diaspora they're playing music yeah. constantly seemingly like it's a Spotify playlist but tying the strands together and I can hear that in the record yeah. but I never would have thought that your dialogue with Swingting existed in the first place right so maybe you could break that down a little bit well only in the fact that you know it is a club that I've visited from time to time over quite a few years now you know it's been I'm not sure how long it's been running but certainly a you know, about five years. You know, that that mix of sounds that you've just mentioned, the, the African strands and the the thing that I identify with is that you can go along a timeline of, uh, you know, what essentially is Afro-Caribbean uh, flavour in a city like Manchester that has this huge um, legacy of... Um, representing that music um, from uh, the Moss Side carnivals that were going on in the sort of from the 70s through the 80s and the club scene uh, that we grew up alongside which included places like the Reno Club in Moss Side. I wouldn't say I was I'm not trying to make out I was there all the time but it, it was a presence in your city that you knew about and occasionally visited and uh, seeps in to um, your environment in terms of uh, a dialogue the whole time. Um, sound system culture in Manchester has always been around and, and bumping up against all the other um, alternative cultures in Manchester. The, you know, Manchester truly is a multicultural city and in this dialogue of the modern day where it's it's an important thing to embrace uh, a city like Manchester. London is totally multicultural in a way that certain things hang together in their own space. You know, uh, the Venn diagram doesn't cross quite as much as it does in a smaller city, where the night the nightclub scene is you know uh, more joined up. Uh, Manchester has got this. Um, fluidity to its culture where um, odd things happen, odd collaborations. We were talking earlier about the days of uh, the Hume Crescents and the, the odd collaborations that used to happen between sort of um, like heavy metal bands and, um, you know, hip hop. And for instance, uh, a guy called Gerald and uh, Edward Barton, who was an eccentric songwriter from who were um, more in the indie field, used to live next door to each other, and they made some brilliant acid house records, one called Born in the North, which you couldn't come up with on paper. It just happened by symbiosis kind of thing. And uh, that's just typically Manchester kind of bumping up against each other ideas, you know. Yeah, you seem to... uh it's it's quite often you can walk down the road in Manchester and you bump into someone from another band. It's that close, and everybody kind of knows each other. So it's uh, quite easy to collaborate with other people from different genres of music. 
Um, we all met in a record shop, didn't we? Yeah, that, yeah. That's when we first got together. It was loosely based around the fact that anyone who was messing around with drum machines could... Um, Join, join the club. <laughs> <laughs> join the club. And uh, I think we were chasing some money, though. You know, we were chasing some government grants at the time that so we could make a record, because making records back then was a lengthy process in, involving a fair amount of finance and uh, studio time. You know, it's not the bedroom thing hadn't been established at that point. Yeah, it was almost impossible, wasn't it, unless you had funding to do it. Yeah. So um, that our, our beginnings were very much about playing live as, as kind of like a set of technology and rappers. There was a lot of rappers around. And then the acid house thing used to come at the end of the um, hip hop nights as an aside. And it was met quite, you know, no, it wasn't welcome, was it? <laughs> No, not particularly. I mean, it, 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 I, I in did, that hip hop crowd, it yeah, was in the hip hop crowd, yeah. you'd probably lose a bit of the crowd. But there was always a few what would hang around to see what what is this strange music you're making. So, sorry, how how exactly were they doing that? Were they going Mantronics into more of the kind of electro tinged artist stuff, and then into the karma things, or were they trying to accelerate the energy at the end of a night? How was that being played in a hip hop? night i'm not really uh, just simply because we were tuning into uh, there was a radio show in manchester called beat this and they'd, they'd play an hour of house and an hour of hip-hop and an hour of street soul and you know it almost became a format didn't it of like it's sort of like these different um sub-genres of music uh, using the same technology you know so there'd be an 808 in the hip-hop there'd be an 808 in the house there'd be a 303 in the hip-hop and, and 303 and you know the equipment was there and all you needed to do you know it filled uh you you just rode the equipment out into acid house which could go on for the side of a cassette or something you know? yeah yeah so you could go out to a night and it'd start off as street soul going to hip-hop and then at the end of the night it'd be acid house and you know people wouldn't blink an eye at it you know even though it was completely different cultures it just seemed to work at the time was that uh cross-pollination period what you were trying to reach to on the album because song to song it's it's very diverse i'm surprised that some of it it's 160 bpm one minute and then there's vocals one minute and not the next and there's some percussive parts on uh i think the Uchala, if oh, I yeah, pronounce yeah, that correctly, yeah. which I, I thought I'd accidentally skipped into a different record. And it's, <laughs> oh, really? it's a pretty arresting <laughs> list to me. We, we think we this think album is quite, quite connected, yeah. quite consistent yeah. uh, compared to some of our other albums that really do take a trip around the, the globe, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we kind of got this idea that this is kind of on the level and the all connects, but maybe... Well, it's, yeah, a, it's not we, jazzy, you know, it's electronic. It's not quite fourth-worldy. It's not maybe as, like, globally travelling, but it's certainly not homogenous. Right, OK. Well, that's an interesting point of view. Um, because uh, we... It's positive feedback. We, it feels we, like I've just we, shot your dog. No, it's good to get feedback. I thought we'd really been contained. Yeah, I've... Well, um, considering what we've done in the past, that was containment. You see, this this album if in its entirety would be um, something like six hours long or something. You know, when you when you have a studio and you're racking up tracks and and you go like, oh, could this fit there and could that fit there? You know, it took a, a process of uh, elimination to get it down to 
uh, a single album. Oh, it's a double album, you know, and I had to, that, you know, the idea of reducing it further was just impossible, you know. So um, it's 13 tracks now. Yeah, and just over an hour. Yeah, and I thought, you know, sonically it's kind of, uh, yeah, I, we like diversity. We like the to visit lots of different uh, flavours in our records and that, that's an A to eight state trope, really, that we move around and play things that are insanely optimistic and then do some really dark stuff. And, you know, it's it's always been an album mentality that we approach uh, making the music over. You know, we come from like an era where the album was king, you know. St- still really find it hard to stop thinking in terms of side A and side B, you know. It's so ingrained. And in the the modern context, it's all about one track, isn't it, you know. Yeah, pick and choose one track where with us it's like, oh, well, that would be side A and here's side B. Yeah. And you try and make it a continuation. But nowadays it's, I just have one track if I like it, won't bother with the rest. Right. I mean, mean, I'm really in love with like B side culture as well, you know, which is a a thing that's probably not um, a viable thing anymore you know i mean these these tracks that don't have to be quite so important all the time you know there's a there's a explorations within music that require that things out just don't have to hit all points at once you know back when we were making uh, things that ended up in the pop charts we never approached a single and go well what would be the perfect single we we arrived at things that just had a vibe that uh, when the culture was soft and inviting new things in, they just managed to live there through their own sense of personality. You know, we had some pretty odd singles in the charts. Yeah, you know? <laughs> just be, yeah, like in your face being one. You know, the original version, which you, you know people um, probably don't know as well as the remix. Now, you know, uh, was um, you know almost like a piece of classical music or something, and it, it was. Uh, edited in a funny way as well. I remember going on holiday and the record company put it out before I'd finished the edit. So yeah. it, it kind of just tails <laughs> off at the end. <laughs> it's just sort of like, it goes, hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that's a bit, a bit of an odd one. Amongst what was going on in the charts at that time, it was like pa- uh, people power spoke then, you know, because they was buying the record and that's what, what charts were based on back then. So, you know, it was, it was an odd thing, but... You know, we've never played straight for the, you know, that genre or that genre. We've always played around with different genres. Yeah, I mean, if you look solely at your, let's say, your chart period for the yeah. three, four, five years where you're getting songs consistently in the top 20 or top 10, they they don't sound alike because one's crunchy and acidic and one's very, like, the smoothed out, buttery side of, like, chill out rape. And it doesn't feel like you were shooting for the hit by kind of conforming to a trope that you've made up. It was just like, oh, this this is working for people. Let's just keep doing what we're doing, no matter if it's crunchy or soft. Yeah, well, I suppose there's no box you could put us in kind of thing. So, you know, one, one we might have a hit with a raging banger and then we'll sit there in the studio, we're, at, we're not going to do another one and we'll do something else. You know, twist, yeah, twist well, the Yeah, what corner. is that though? What is that belligerent attitude that, that pervaded everything that we did back then? Well, uh, back, <laughs> was it, back was then it, there was no rules or boundaries, was there? Was it a dynamic within the band where it was like, oh, well, you've had 
your turn now do something yeah because there was a lot of people in the band at that point where so a lot of opinions so in order to get something like a single like lift across yeah it, it required um a certain amount of other records to go out you know yeah people often talk about you know uh, what got, got released as beatles singles you know and people had to wait their turn for yeah. uh, and some classic things got buried on b-sides and all that i think when you have a band of four quite strong-minded in- individuals sensible conversations uh, don't necessarily result in sensible decisions <laughs> you know there was a, a lot of chaos to what we did you know but the chaos uh, the energy of chaos is is a beautiful thing sometimes i think you know there's a lot of uh ridiculous decisions in that music that that has kept it alive over many years you know if uh you know there's, there's no formula it's deliberate an- anti-formula yeah i mean there are also and as you say about uh, maybe some heads being butted in that era there were also fallouts that happened through it um i believe i'm, I'm hoping i'm on steady ground here that the relationship with a guy called Gerald had been patched up since, but that ran out as a bit of scurrilous gossip in the music press at the time. That oh, yeah, there was yeah. beef and there was court cases and everything, which to me is, as a modern day dance music fan, is is odd. You don't often see internal warfare bleed out that that yeah, heavily, that's, possibly that's because that can thing, be yeah. a death knell for your career yeah, if you're yeah. seen to be fighting with a member of your your DJ collective, your group, and that spills out onto social media. That can often dominate the narrative to the point no one cares about the music anymore. They just want to see like a bun fight. I'm so yeah. glad there wasn't the social media thing back then because, like you know, it, it, those, those, there's every, so many sides to that opinion kind of thing and you've got to remember that at that point we were just about to sign a record deal with ZTT and what and that was in jeopardy uh, over this uh, fracas and that he was with CBS at that time so it becomes CBS law department versus Warner Brothers law department it's not a lot to do with uh, you two uh, in in the studio. Do you know what I mean? It becomes this sort of ballooned thing, you know. And, it becomes uh, a lawyer's game, doesn't it? And there was a lot. Of, there was, you know, from uh, our personal point of view, there was a lot at stake here. You know, we'd spent a lot of time, you know, approaching this moment. You know, with a whole lot of music. You know, ZTT originally came up to see us over. Um, a snub TV appearance with MC Tunes. They were really interested in him as as a star, and in, indeed they gave him a separate contract. So it wasn't this case of like, oh, they've got a hit because that they didn't know about that when they when we negotiated this deal. They came up and went, these guys have got a record store, these guys have got a studio, these guys got a radio show. You know, they've got a whole village industry of things. We we were quite attractive, you know. We were quite attractive to a lot of record companies at that point. Yeah, but they so, was getting more than just a band, weren't they? When they was getting out, so was, you know, yeah. they got two artists out of one, basically. Yeah. And that whole thing of being like, you know, we were, you know, pretty volatile bunch back then. Yeah, we were all really young, and, and Martin was always a controversial figure. He'd say outrageous stuff all the time. You go back through his quotes in the music press. And he was deliberately, he, he just deliberately said outrageous stuff all the time. Yeah. He, he, his personality was, 
edgy, wasn't he? Yeah. He, was a, his, he was an edgy character. And, you know, things often fell into conflict in easy way, in easy ways. You know, looking back on that, that, um, whole period of things, things could have been easily sorted out in, in a, in, in quite simple, you know, um, back then, you know, and then it all becomes legend and people add their bits to it. And it's like, it was amazing talking to um, some guy who was a- around when we were do- making those records. And I forgot that the studio was often full of about 14 people or something. <laughs> really? All crammed in. Just you know, hangers about. Yeah, hanging yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Instead, like, recording was an event. Yeah. Especially if you were recording on, like, a Saturday morning or something like that. The whole... People are just turning up. It's just you know, the people watches. from the record shop be like, hey, the recording kind of thing. And everyone would turn up and they'd be like, you know, there's plenty of witnesses to all that scenario down there. You know, that, as I say, it was chaotic and trying to make, you know, musical decisions in that environment was on a budget and on, you know, studio time was really expensive. You had to go in, write a tune, mix it and finish it, you know. It was crazy fast, you know. It's amazing that we got anything done when I think about it. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't think in there. And people, yeah, if you get people like smoking, and, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like, it wasn't this lab-like sort of clean electronic environment we were working in. It was like a sweat box of... Uh, Mayhem. <laughs> um, more like making a tune in a party, you know. It, you know, people were like, you know, having it, you know. And and also in there was other bands making records at that time, weren't they? Like, everyone was queuing up to make an Acid House record at that point, almost. There was a, a band who um, also used that studio. Uh, Candy Flip, you might know, remember Candy Flip, who had a hit with Strawberry Fields Forever or something. And they, they were about 17 or something, but complete, um, you know, party animals yeah, at the yeah. same time. It's like, you had to be careful which cup of tea you picked up. <laughs> You know, you two are really grinning about this era of chaos and friction because obviously a lot of great stuff came out of it. And you mentioned like a sanitised lab-like way of making music. Um, And I'm guessing that is the condition in which the new record got made where there's no physical ram headbutting drama, but it's an album that kind of fizzes with with youthful energy and lots of different explorations, but presumably this one was made in a more standardised, long gestating, anti-dramatic way where you sat down and you wrote and recorded and there wasn't bun fights. Or maybe there was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it wasn't done in isolation. Uh, you know, this place where we were recording, which is uh, the old... Granada TV studios in Manchester. It's a place that had uh, been abandoned by the TV station because they moved to Salford um, early 2000s. So it was a building awaiting uh, a reuse situation whereby artists and uh, creatives are naturally drawn in to uh, cheap rents. Uh, in order to regenerate an area kind of thing. They do it all the time now, don't they, in London, in, in any city in the world. They're, they're, I mean, we're in East London. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole place is completely yeah. different. It was 10 years that, ago. That, that, that model is playing out everywhere. So we, we, we're aware that we were had that role, in a way. So there was a bunch of, you know, a lot of people, a lot of creatives in that building. Um, there's a ra- radio reformer in there and 
so the place is full of DJs and uh, various other recording studios in there. So people were lending equipment off each other. I was actually uh, originally sort of subletting that room we had from Mr. Scruff. Um, and Dennis Jones was in there next door. He was, you know, there was people coming in all the time. You know, it wasn't like shut the door and get on with it. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. But um, there was a, a sense of community in the building. And therefore, when you were making stuff, uh, everyone had an opinion. And, you know, again, it was like quite a social yeah. vibe. People would just pop in, wouldn't they? Call yeah. in just for a chat. And yeah, then we you were, go, whoa, listen to this, what we're doing at the moment. Well, again, that's, you know, quite uh, quite a Manchester thing that's always gone on, you know. And, um, I can't think of any album that didn't have that kind of um, sense of openness to what we were doing. So the answer to that question is, was it is, is, is things slowed up in terms of the process? Yeah, they've slowed up. Uh, but it just means you're working on multiple ideas at the same time. You know, I think that's a different energy. Yeah, well, it's not like a pressure cooker. Yeah. You have the, the, the ability to sprawl out if you need to. Yeah. And you, you, um, it's a little bit more considered. And, but what you have to learn in that, uh, Chinese menu world of every possibility at your fingertips is a return to economy. And I think that the, the record has a return to economy for a band like us. Uh, you can go back to our last album, you know, 17 years ago, whatever, but Transmission, Outpost Transmission. We've got tr- too many transmissions. <laughs> um, but that is a, is much more, uh, ornate or oriental sounding. Somebody described it as a sort of like a punch up in a, a China, you know, some sort of like a oriental wok restaurant or something, <laughs> <laughs> which I kind of got. Yeah, it it had uh, you know an exotic feel to it, um, but it was much more less about dance music than you know it our arc of making music had travelled out from dance music to some outpost somewhere, <laughs> uh, you know. So now we, we, we sense that we're the, the, in this record to, to be more about the physical act of throwing yourself about. Yeah. You know, you, you brought up something I was going to, which is the, the double transmission factor. Yeah. And that to me strikes me as very deliberate because even 17 years is a long time. Like yeah. a kid that was born in 2002 is basically going out raving now. But it feels like you're not trying to attempt a clean break so much as a soft reset by using the same word twice. I don't know if that was intentional, but it struck me as quite a nice, like picking up the thread where you left yeah. it, even if musically it's different. There's a certain amount of synchronicity in it as well, because like, you know, literally the door where you let yourself in in the morning had transmission suite as a, one of those uh, plastic signs on the door, you know, so it was there anyway, you know, and it was, it just kept hitting you every day when you went in there. It's like this huge room about the size of a football pitch, but it's sided all round with glass. And then it has 80 TV screens. So it has a sense of Mission Control Houston about it. And it has these huge arced desks with um, TV mixing equipment that is useless. 
but it looks good. It's got lots of knobs. So you put all your knobs on top of the, those knobs kind of thing. And it's, <laughs> it's a lot it's, of knobs. It's a lot of knobs. <laughs> and uh, all this racking uh, and wiring everywhere. So you pull up the floor and there's layers of wires from the 1950s. There's layers of wire, wires from every decade uh, because they replaced it all the time. There's some dead rats in there as well, which yeah. stink a bit sometimes, <laughs> followed by a cloud of blue bottles. So, you know, it's like, you know, it has the trappings of cutting edge technology with, um, with had, these ghosts, this had, feeling of ghostliness. in. It had a lot of history in that room, didn't it? Yeah. Underneath the, this room is the studios where the Beatles first recorded... Um, their t- TV appearances, you know, the one with the Pentax cameras behind them. And um, so, and there was like Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, all kinds of early rock and rollers were accepted into this building, whereas they wouldn't be at the BBC quite so easily. The Sex Pistols did their first TV appearance in that studio. Again, the BBC, no chance. And then uh, Joy Division did their first TV appearance. And we did our first TV appearance, which was uh, a version of Pacific State uh, on Tony Wilson's program, The Other Side of Midnight. And he invited us in after seeing us playing in a pub uh, in Bolton. He declared us the new Sex Pistols (laughs) and invited (laughs) us on the TV. And we didn't, we'd just uh, done a mix of Pacific at that point. And we went and played that because the saxophone wasn't on it. Uh, the saxophone was on it, so it was less knob twiddly. You know, so we did that. And uh, recently seen a clip of that. And he says at the end, it's like, that's the theme from A to Eight State because it, it, we had, it hadn't got the name at that point. It hadn't um, been out on a white label. You used to play it on a cassette, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I used to play it on a cassette um, in a club in Manchester. Um, used to play it as the last tune and over the space of a three weeks sort of weekly residency um, you could sense that you know it, it's it was doing something this um, and that was you know that was a, 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 probably around about the same time what, when it was on TV wasn't it so it yeah. became like whoa did you see that they, it, they was on TV yeah that that was the beginning of the journey of that tune and it maybe took a, a while longer before it started getting played on Radio 1 because Gary Davis, the Radio 1 daytime DJ, had been uh, out raving in Ibiza and brought it back and started playing it off an, essentially an album track. It, we never put it out as a single, it was an EP. And uh, he started playing it daytime radio and that really bumped things up. But it was it was established in the clubs around that time as well. Hacienda were playing it. I remember the first time the Hacienda played it, and you know, just being that you know air punching moment of like ah, finally, you know, get getting that in. But we were talking before about how you could actually, um, you know, back then we we'd make a cassette and take it down the Hacienda. We could make a cassette um, that evening, jump in a cab, get it played on a cassette by John De Silva on Hot Night, which is like the sweatiest um, atmospheric night, without question. You know, it, you know, he didn't go, oh, I need to hear it first, guys. You know? <laughs> and that became that single that was uh, like a New Order remix called, um, it was Blue Monday, So Hot, because it was for the Hot Night. That's Gerald singing on, on that record kind of thing. 
yeah, that was the spontaneity of being able to do that and then go back in the studio and tweak it a bit. And yeah, it was an incredible loop of... Uh, you know, I, I didn't want to overly focus on Pacific State because I know you guys have spoken about it to probably until your, your teeth hurt. Um, but it does strike me as incredible, if you'll indulge me for a minute, that there are... The 707, 202, 808, 98, 909, the 909 Mellow Birds, Mega Edit, Brit Mix, used by Dot Scott, the KLF, Nookie, Soshi Tirada, Kicks Like a Mule, Groove Rider, Tom Pritchard, Justin South, Luke Viber, and even on the day today. So it's kind of filled part of the air of British dance music since its inception, though I both heard you variously say that you didn't think that was going to be your, 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 your calling card. And yet somehow it's just in the DNA and it's in the bloodstream of British music of the last 30 years which must be quite an interesting thing to carry around with you know and there was a hundred Italian bootlegs out of it as well at the same time yeah <laughs> it was coming in every week everything you did became an Italian bootleg a week after yeah. didn't it yeah that was peculiar <laughs> they were so fast <laughs> I think they must have been smuggling it in on boats in Cornwall or something because it was just uh, just overpowering. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, some tracks have a life of their own, definitely, you know. And it's like a lot of those ones you mentioned, I've not heard of. <laughs> and yeah, those are mean samples and people yeah, throwing and it through the mix casually. Yeah, but you hear that riff and you know what it is. One of the first times we heard it sampled was the KLF Chill Out album. And it's then like, oh, they've sampled it kind of thing. And it's like, uh, you know, it wasn't like you just had to go like, like well, that's, you know, it seemed fitting, you know, and it seemed, uh, you know, the sampling thing was really free at the beginning. You know, it was like no one thought about the kind of morality of sampling, particularly back then. Well, you know, there was a sort of karmic law of... Uh, it was a nod. There was a nod, there yeah. Was a and nod there was a between... yeah, there, They'd nod to us, we'd nod to them. Oh, with the KLF thing, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah th that was the first time somebody broke a bit off and made it into a different context, and then it kept going. And then there must be hundreds on SoundCloud of people having a go at it and almost claim making it look like it's an official version, but there's, there's, they're not official versions. And I, don't, I don't know how you would sort of organise all that output of that tune, you know. It just goes on and on and on. Just... I think by this point you have to be magnanimous enough to let it go and just continue that life of its own. Yeah, sure, yeah. And particularly, you know, we, you, know you see it like the great pottery throwdown <laughs> will be playing a brass band version of it and it, or like there was another Jeremy Della version of it with doing a steel band version of it uh, in the Bahamas for some Olympic thing and it just, it just carries on in its own way, you know, and it's... Um, but there's, you know, several, of, you know, quite a lot of the other tunes doing doing that in their own sweet way as well, you know. The amount of versions of Army of Me that are knocking about, which is like another tune that, uh, one of the tunes I did with Bjork kind of thing, there's incredible amounts of of that tune in a heavy metal context, sort of. In a, in a heavy metal context? Yeah, loads of heavy metal bands do that tune, yeah. It's like an angry anthem for um, a generation of Americans, you know. It's like, wow, that's that's not something I'm aware of. That's very right. cool. Well, have a have a check out on the internet because uh, there was also like uh, a charity record where we had to sift through a hundred versions 
of submitted versions to go on a whole album of versions of Army of Me, which uh, was part of the Tsunami relief thing for... I want to talk a bit about nostalgia as a concept. Um, I put up a quote from Dave Haslam, who, for those that don't know, is a Mancunian journalist, uh, been around for a while, has you know, got his stripes. He said, in 2007, I'm into being part of a Manchester music scene that celebrates its past without living in the past. I admit it's a difficult balance, but I think that what's sometimes forgotten is that every generation has a new battle to fight. It's not great if Manchester ends up something like a Manchester theme park. It's embarrassing. And he said that 12 years ago. Yeah. And then he brought that back up when there was the um, the release of the Fact 51 gin that was coming out recently. Oh, yeah. Your new record puts a pin in the idea that you're literally just living in a past because you're not and it and it's fresh and it's exciting but also to continue circulating around people's consciousness you have to pay homage to where you came from and you obviously are part of the the city and the country's dance music lineage so i wonder how you juggle that balance of nostalgia and futurism without getting caught in a trap on either side and if it's a difficult tightrope yeah. to walk it, it is, and we have at times, I mean, I personally at times have felt trapped in that nostalgia thing because like some of, you know, in, in recent years we, we get asked to play um, alongside, you know, things like Happy Mondays gigs and, you know, but out there in the in the gig world, you know, when we're trying to do gigs that, that work, you know, it, it, we're, when we go out, there's like five or six people, you know, this costs money, you know, <laughs> in order to go and um, do that, make a, any kind of money to put in the pot. There's those awkward moments where you go like, oh, and you want to do a Hassi and the Classical gig again? And where it goes, ah, and then there's no money in the bank, <laughs> and so you, so you do it, you know. And yet, if you're there representing with the music that you believe in, and you're playing to 10,000 people and you could, you know, every, there's a, there has to be a point where your music has to work in any situation. And we found ourselves in some odd situations. But if you, if the music works, it works anywhere. You could play it in a kindergarten and it would work, you know. You, you've got to have that confidence with, with the music, you know, that when we first set out, doing gigs in america rave was not established at all it was non-existent yeah and yet there was some people um pioneering it in terms of uh, trying to put on big parties one was uh, long beach in 90 1989 was it 90 90 yeah and um they'd seen a european version of uh, you know what raves could be and there was people going very interested in seeing if this could work and we played some interesting ones in texas which was like often gets uh, not mentioned that texas yeah, was da this big rave center dallas was a, a big rave thing yeah wasn't it it's was like huge um, there was we've pulled in ten thousand in in like dallas in 1990 um and it was like the first we wasn't promoting 808 state was promoting dance music and we went from coast to coast probably seen more of america than most americans have seen yeah stopping at big cities and then doing a few small ones in between and, and those little seeds you put down in the places between the big cities they're still 
giving back now, aren't they? Yeah, kind yeah. Of thing. You yeah. know, it's it was uh, yeah. You felt like you were taking Coles to Newcastle in some ways. And when we first went back to De- we first went to Detroit, where we expected to find um, in a context where everyone knew what that music was about. It was such a tiny scene, wasn't it? Yeah, we were there? it was tiny. It was shocking when we, because we was like, oh, we're going to Detroit, great, brilliant. We got there and it was like, you know, you're lucky to get 300 people in a nightclub playing electronic dance music. It was, it was like, well, hang on. I mean, I mean, they're probably, you know, we were there slightly at a point in time when it had maybe played out its own thing. Mm. And um, their nights that had established that scene were probably huge, yeah, you know. Yeah. But um, I don't know what we we had the expectations about Detroit, and every one of our heroes was almost in the audience, you know. Yeah, yeah. And First they were very welcoming, played. and uh, you know, uh, there was a sense of connection because they knew that Manchester was loving, you know, giving love back to that scene, you know. Uh, a lot of their records being, um, you know, established in Britain through through the nightclubs in Manchester. Uh, so, yeah, it was an interesting point where we realised it's like, oh, right, the perspective of, of how en- unentrenched the dance music that we saw as a blueprint was, you know, how fragile it was and how unsupported in its own culture it was. You know, It's taken uh, many years for that thing to expand into music history in a, in a way. Well, and we were, yeah, that was early. It was like 1990s. Yeah, so 30 years on now, America's got EDM and it's huge. And we'd like to say we helped start that. I know I'm not a fan of EDM, but respect to whoever's doing it. You know. What I'm hearing is this guides your lack of cynicism about the same cynicism people might have about being too hot in one era because as you say, Music is fragility and you can't just put something in a canon and claim it's a classic and leave it untouched for 40 years and it still has the same reverence. You have yeah. to keep adding to it and taking to it and nurturing that relationship, that yeah. two-way street. Yeah, it's, yeah. Gar- it's gardening, isn't it? You know, you have to, you have to kind of <laughs> nurture it. Yeah. What, what's interesting to me about where you left off in terms of your last record 17 years ago is that, looking back, seems to be like a low ebb in British dance music or the dance music infrastructure that a lot of like European trance music was massive, but you guys had already kind of flown the nest of, of brave music. You had people like Guy Garvey on the record who it, it seems anachronistic to me that you could have Guy Garvey on an electronic record back then. Obviously things were different, Elbow weren't quite like the massive cultural great, but it, it looks odd looking back. Yeah. But that must have been a point where it was the low ebb, a cream would collapse. There were lots of signs that dance music had kind of run its course or imploded but now do you think it's in better health ruder health or maybe you're not quite as tied to boom and bust as i am um yeah because so, uh, all along that timeline you felt like uh, uncertain about what the next move is in clubland you know it always felt like a crumbling edge uh, from the word go you know we were talking about nostalgia and there was nostalgia for 1988 in 1989, you know, and it, it falls back on itself constantly. Um, that that nostalgia for like the summer you had a great clubbing, you know, uh, or the the way one tune intersects with your life and and certain memories and things, you know. So yeah, there's this sense that um, the baton is being passed to 
different generations, you know, as 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 people become um, fam- more family orientated as things go on, you know, you have to nav- navigate. You know, club clubbing doesn't become as important. Then you get the second wave of clubbing once your kids have left. <laughs> <laughs> left, and, you know. I think nowadays, I think uh, it's a different climate in it altogether. Uh, you've you've Did- still got them super clubs knocking around, but they've now turned into festivals. And where where we last left off, it was a pretty miserable time in the life of dance music. Probably could have ended, but obviously, you know, there's people on the underground still pushing for it, which it still is nowadays, you know. That's why it keeps going. It's 30 years I th- on. I think um, the, the the big difference as well is that that's when the internet was first getting, you know, it's getting really established. We had an internet site in 94. Three was it? Ninety four. I think it was ninety four. No, yeah. we were one of there was very few bands with an internet site when we first got ours. There was a guy that we bumped into and said the internet was the future and you're the perfect band to represent the internet or whatever. The future. And uh, <laughs> so we started one with one of those modems that took half an hour to download one minute of music and we we're like, Yeah, we're gonna put our music on the internet and people are gonna download it and it's like yeah, did the technology you're, you're wasn't mad. up to it, was it? You know? <laughs> no. So we, we did a CD, it was called State to State, and you, you joined our uh, mailing list and we sent it. Uh, you know, it was pretty clunky sort of version of the internet. But um, forums on the internet, we saw that, the development of that, and the fact that, you know, fans had an influence, uh, an input back into what you were doing. And we, we've, we've had the same webmasters for many years, uh, Marcus Arnold uh, from Amsterdam and Nick King uh, have become our archivists in a way. You know, they would sort of like collect all the data from what gigs you were doing, flyers, uh, every version of every record that was ever available. And these are a very valuable kind of input of data into the timeline. And that's all on 828state.com. For instance, all the radio shows from the early days of... Uh, Manchester raving that that Darren and Andrew used to do on Sunset Radio. They're all archived on that site as well. There's all the interview clippings, which I tried desperately not to read because I was just going to quote things back to you the whole time. But it's all there. You've got your entire history of press there, which is not that common. A lot of things are quite transient on social media. They make a big splash and they go the next day. Yeah, and it's kind of, yeah, because data has become so... um, It's a cheap commodity. It's everywhere, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's too much. You couldn't... It doesn't have a value to keep it anymore. Whereas, like, actually looking back on um, this timeline of your journey through music, it's the, that data is really kind of um, tells a story of like how sometimes you think, oh, that was a really intense period, and you look at it and it's like, God, we barely did anything that year, you know. And it's like, it's 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 not complete data. It's as it happened, though, isn't it? I mean, when you're reading it, it's as it as it was happening at yeah. the time. It's not somebody's it gone informs, back in history. Like, you know, looking at journalism throughout the the dance music thing, it was very hard to start up uh, serious music journalism about dance music for many years. Like the Enemy and Melody Maker traditional music journalism came to it really quite late, and when when they came to it, it was in the form of things like Mixmag, which were very skewed, as as skewed as the Daily Mail in some ways, <laughs> because like it was like they had a vested interest in pushing their DJs. That's why you would get certain characters on the front cover of that uh, publication over and over again. And they shaped dance music and DJ 
history in that way. You know what I mean? It wasn't an open book and it wasn't... Uh, yeah, it's interesting to look back on the flow of journalism towards dance music. Yeah, the press could very strongly control the narrative in the early 90s. This is obviously a little bit before my time because it's when I was born effectively, but I remember seeing covers of... Someone like the KLF smashing a guitar in 91 and then being like, rock music is dead. And oh, I then think the that next was L- LFO. Suede yeah. smashing a synthesizer being like, dance music is dead. Oh, right. and, in, and in nine months, the two main pillars of culture apart from hip hop had both been living and then killed and then living again. And it, it just seemed ridiculous to me that you could make such a bold claim, but no one was there on the internet to challenge you. So you could kind of put it out and let it yeah. sit and it would shape people's understanding of it. Yeah. It was, it was maybe a, f- a bit more damaging than helpful at that time. They had time. a lot of power at that time, you know. It was, it was, it was kind of that Oasis Blur thing, you know. It was completely made up by the press, but it was, it was them selling newspapers, you know. I mean, when our introduction into the record industry, you know, we we signed to ZTT, but we were effectively handled by Warner Brothers, which is, uh, you know, when you go back and watch Spinal Tap films, and they have that guy Artie Fufkin who looks after them kind of thing. It was that era of promotion, you know. You know, you'd meet some guy in Holland with a Dire Straits tour jacket on and you just your heart just sank going like, oh, well, this ain't going to work, you know. It's just not going to work, you know. Because and it's, he turned up in a Harley-Davidson. <laughs> yeah. That change, you, was, you were impatient for change, but sometimes you had to be, you know, just where you were, trying to uh, keepy-uppy with where, what you'd achieve, which was accidental weirdo pop records, you know. That, that keepy-uppy thing got really hard, you know. You started to second-guess things. But there was moments along the way where you'd made really some bad decisions on what records you put out at various points. And then there was points where you rallied back in, going like, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. And then points where you just came running back at it with a vengeance and and one record being Don Solaris. I remember sweating blood over that record, yeah. As and it still I think holds up as a really um powerful piece of work, you know. And it's at a point when dance music it was so far out from dance music and clubbing, um, but in a really successful way. You know, it kind of as an album I'm I'm really proud of that record, you know, but it has nothing to do with whatever clubbing was at that point in time. It becomes like a very much, uh, almost like a prog album or something. It was more rebellious to what was going on at the time, because we was bored of what was actually happening at the time, weren't we, really? Yeah, I think my main, main kind of emotion back then was like, you know, just to do something that you could be proud of, you know, and that's an odd set of odd set of things to set out to do you know yeah so much work when when i listen to it it actually hurts a little bit you know because the amount of effort that went into it there's a sort of feeling in your body uh but i think it's a beautiful record it felt like the beginning of when people were viewing you not as like instrumental club act in the pop charts but when those influences that you've had along like you just mentioned prog like you're into gong and you were into martin denny and exotica and tangerine dream and kind of fourth world explanations that kind of gets smudged out when you're at the height of britain's rave mania but then that can all come back in and just like i'm ahead i've got a record collection I know a lot about stuff yeah. and I can show that off I think you mentioned during a DJ mag retrospective 
that you would compare yourself to top shelf whiskey, which I thought was quite a nice way of describing <laughs> the way you are now. You've matured on the shelves and you've got a lot of character and flavour that I is probably maybe thought I was uh, mature <laughs> 20 years ago, but now I'm, I'm really mature now. People might not have been looking at Top of the Pops and looking at a midi sack and unplugged equipment and be like, oh, I bet these guys know Ferris Sanders records front to back. I don't think Correct. you can really get that <laughs> on the TV, but then you slowly had to seep that back into real life. Yeah, because you, I, you know, musically, that's the stuff that you can lean back on and it's, it's eternal, some of this music. And ultimately, if you're doing music, you want to be eternal. You know, you want... That's what it's about. You know, it's kind of like... Um, you know, a different kind of communication that can talk to anyone on the planet and after you've gone, you know. And, you know, I think it's... Uh, I think there's certainly some of the 808 state music that has, pro has been proven that way, you know, with, like you were saying about um, uh, the way it seeps into all these... Has it has its own life, you know. So, yeah, ultimately... You, if you're musical heroes, you're trying to climb up on that pedestal with your musical heroes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, also at times playing with 808 State to absolutely get lost in the music. You know, love playing live in terms of a, an electronic band. It's it's something that can get really sweaty and transcendent. You know, at times where a tune like Pacific, you can improvise the hell out of, you know, it's not people probably wonder what it is when they hear yeah. it, don't they? <laughs> I mean, talk about, I mean, I'm not comparing myself to Pharaoh Sanders, but my head is in that space. Yeah, my head is definitely uh, aspiring to that kind of uh, level of um, um, leaving the planet <laughs> you kind of want to make every tune timeless don't you that's you want you want it to be able to look back at your catalogue and go put that on play it against anything nowadays and it does it stand up most of it does i saw a really interesting post by a very very uh highly respected like current designer called david rudnick who does artists like one tricks point never and clouds and has a very like futuristic style of design where he was talking about growing up alongside apex and future sounds of london yourselves and that when he was young it created a vocabulary for transcendence in a world outside and not just not just sonically but technically the words of like jungle and time stretching and the kind of sunrises and pacific states and exotic paradises yeah. were being evoked musically and in the phrasing that was being used and that for a lot of people it's maybe lost now with the current generation but that was a way to really escape your physical self and enter a mode of something else that you could climb into when you grew up yeah. but with the uh, the data overload and the information age we spoke about maybe the importance of that of artists being able to shape a world beyond has diminished do you think whether dreaming has been kind of smudged out by access to knowledge and that kind of role of electronic music to paint something beyond doesn't hold quite as much emphasis with people because they actually can research that beyond and understand it and make it tangible. And a Pacific state sunrise isn't some far imagined ideal, but something you could just Google now. Yeah, and then like most people nowadays give three to five seconds of a new track and then go, don't like it, skip it. So you've you kind of 
you kind of are losing that thing where you you can send yourself off to another planet, even though you sat in your bedroom or whatever. You know, yeah. you think it's... I think in a way that transcendence through music is as old as the hills. You know, it goes way back to you know BC. You know, it goes way back to when music started. You know, it's having grown up through the sixties and into the seventies. And what witnessing alternative culture in England, kind of thing. There's this thread, you know, we're talking about gong, and that's the the world I I kind of grew up in. There's a we used to go on a bus with these this band called Here and Now. There's a, a documentary that just went up last week about this band Here and Now. It were like the ultimate free festival band, and they they became the backing band for David Allen when he left Gong. And uh, there was this whole idea that music should be free and you should go round and just ask for what people think it's worth. And that's where my musical journey began on this converted ambulance going around the country doing this mad music, you know, where you were angry back then. You know, there was a sort of punk element to what you were doing and it was just like shouting and screaming and making a noise. But you witnessed how uh, British subcultures were so weak back then that they gathered together. Uh, you there'd be festivals back then where it was full of punks, hippies, uh, you know, all the West Indian music, you know, all the reggae stuff. Um, you know, there's a, a festival in Rochdale called Deeply Vale Festival, and they had everything from jazz rock fusion to the fall to um, Hawkwind and this kind of thing. And you, you've, you've got a sense early on that every everyone that's that's wants a kind of different alternative view of what society should be, uh, you know, music is this, this tool to bash that through, you know. And years later in the rave thing, it actually became very visceral. It became, actually, this is working. This is changing uh, social divisions. This is changing class divisions in clubs. You know, it may well have been the drugs, but you know, it actually, it, as people gathered in big numbers, and uh, you know, became um, breaking down all these social norms and social barriers, that the music that tracked that had a lot of roots in the music of the people who aspired to that. 10 years earlier, 15 years earlier, you know, and people started using this summer of love analogy for the, the rave thing. And we were really irritated by that at the time because it felt new. It felt, but actually looking back on it now, this thread that followed all the way through it was just simply about railing against a, a terrible governmental system that we lived through in the 80s, which was Thatcherism, you know, and, and this sense of like, um, people in, um, you know, a, a whole generation that was left hanging. Uh, they didn't have a hope in hell of achieving self-empowerment. And then the rave thing was totally about self-empowerment in a way, because it wasn't just about music. It was the energy it brought to our city in terms of uh, commerce and new business and, and, and people having a crack at something. And some of it being criminal, probably. But, I mean, there was a whole economy based around that energy that uh, that still lives in the city now, you know. And it's almost been hijacked at various points by uh, more... Um, corporate. Corporate <laughs> forces, 
You know, but yeah, that thing you're talking about where uh, a city becomes its sort of faces of like, you know, uh, that beatalization of Manchester, we've really been fearful of like, we never stood a chance of that because we were a faceless techno band, you know what I mean? We're, not, we're never going to get included. And so many times we're not included in the story of Manchester music. Well, who changed music in, in, in that era? Were, were the people dabbling with this technology? All the great um, British export bands of that era were pretty oddball bunch, KLF, Orb, Orbital, Chemical Brothers, all these things. You, you couldn't put them in, none of them fitted together. You know, it was, it was just this energy that came out in all these different ways. And again, that's in the tradition of um, British subcultural music. And back to this album where you, you were saying about the the way you can look at a time thread of British um, underground music. and Kind of and, refracted through it, yeah. Yeah, and, and go anywhere on that timeline. That, that's what I'm hearing in clubs now. You, people know their stuff. Then they're interested in that timeline. You know, to, the internet has enabled that kind of selection process where things are rediscovered and recontextualized and you know i remember hearing you know hearing things like uh, a goth record like bella lugosi's dead you know by bar house being played next to drum and bass and 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 think that that'll never work and it works perfectly you know because there's a you know these um there's so many of those stories in into we you know you just revealed something really interesting that i was gonna kind of to put my own referral in the record and from what we've spoken about in the last hour, the fact that you pick Granada Studios is because it has a cultural heritage, it has a historical heritage that the city you're from. What you've just spoken about, about Rave not just being escapism and a, a wicked new sound in the charts, but restoring some kind of dignity to labour and to communities after a decade of them being kneecapped constantly. It, it seems to me that the visual tropes of the record that we've seen so far as well as where it's made and the way the new logo is based out of TV screens seem to hark back to putting a bit of regeneration in that area and into the city. And I wonder if that was a conscious move to try and spotlight an air, uh, a building that brought a lot of joy culturally to the city and whether you guys trying to revive that spark was deliberate, where it was something, a wider aim in making it there and having it hooked around the theme of television Granada Studios or is that just circumstantial? Um, it's a sense of the fact that that building was going to leave us you know and it was a building that um, used to when you travelled into Manchester on the train you used to see this huge aerial and this huge glowing neon sign that put um, your city in a world context almost you know um, TV was a massive deal when we were growing up. You know, you had three channels. One of them was Granada, you know. You know, the BBC view of the world, you, even as a child, you knew that it was a bit stuffy. And then Granada was this rebel-y kind of thing, you know, where uh, it had some utter rubbish on it, you know. I mean, um, but they, they had great documentaries like World in Action and Man Alive. They did great... Um, journalism they also presented music that was uh that fired you up the whole punk thing came into manchester through on a six o'clock broadcast tea time you know not late at night hidden away 
It was it was like coming through tea time while you're eating your fish fingers, you know. And alongside that, you would have like pop programs uh, get that gave um, proggy things on pop programs. There was like a Bass City Rollers next to PFM, which was a like a Italian prog band or. David Bowie doing Starman for the first time wasn't that famous Top of the Pops footage. It was on Lift Off with Aisha, which is a tea time fish finger broadcast from Granada, you know. And to me, it was this very special place that was going to leave us. And, you know, to do something on that spot, uh, surrounded by history, you had this sense of getting off the tram and going to that building every day. You're surrounded by history. You get off at a Roman fort that overlooks um, this Civil War bridge where the, the Roundheads and the Cavaliers battled over it because there's this building called Campfield Market and that's where they kept all, all the cannons and the horses and the building of Granada is built and on a plague pit. And all these things are there. Uh, all this history, the Peterloo thing that everyone's been, uh, it's been celebrated recently, which is um, the battle for the right for cheap food in 18, well, it's left me now, early 1800s. And they'd sent the cavalry in and just killed a load of people. You know, that, that these things are monumented around this area. You know, you have a living history there. And, uh, you know, music's music and, you know, they're not these weighty things, but... Nobody was documenting their place, was he, at the time? We both sat there talking about it, saying somebody should be in here filming this. Uh, the building, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah because it was going to go. So that's why we got, it was more like, let's get the building involved with this album we made, you know. It was, but, uh, somebody think, had to document it, so it looks like we've the ones who've done it. Yeah. Well, I think also you just have, energy comes up from the city sometimes. You get it in a place like London, you know, there's sort of like so much has gone on in certain places in London that, um, you know, you only have to sort of feel it through coming up through your feet, you know, and that's going to change the way any artist works. You know, you, it infuses what you do. It was a very inspiring place to make a record, you know. It's next to Castlefield Arena where we've done many big outdoor concerts in Manchester. feels like our little home spot there. And, uh, you know, it's next to the first railway station on earth, all these kind of crazy little moments of uh, invention. Like, literally, like, 200 yards away from our studio is the world's first computer in the Science and Industry Museum. And you, you go in there and just have a look at all these early computers. Ferranti made these computers in Manchester uh, that were for missile systems, but they were the first ones that worked properly. And, you know, and then we're in this building. It's like you feel connected in industrial history. And some of this stuff is because, like, you know, the, our, our fathers were always involved in industry, always involved in engineers. They were all engineers in some kind of way. They did things. They made things. And uh, as, as they came home from work and talked about all these places, of um, these industrial places that made things, our generation felt like, how do I continue that in some ways? And uh, sometimes I think that, you know, musical engineering and technology that, to make music 
is some kind of way of grasping at the baton from these previous generations that made this, um, you know, the working class environment of Manchester that we both grew up in, you know. Um, the place you grew up in was Ancoats, which was the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, wasn't it? It's a crazy place full of like these chimneys and mills. It looks like a Lowry painting, but now it's baristas and... Yeah, it's a super cool place to be. You can get craft bakery and <laughs> special IPAs. and uh, You know, it's just nuts, isn't it, the way we grew up to the what, what Manchester has become. There's a sense of a city just becoming another city and you know so so there is a sense of nostalgia and a, a point of just drawing attention to this moment of change because it's also unusual that we did this futurist music look into the future always look into the future when trying to make music you know um to just be involved with synthesizers and the the, the craft work model kind of thing of what mu- futurist music would be you know and um, it almost feels like we've reached that moment. You know, it was supposed to be there in the year 2000, but now it really is turning to skyscrapers and, um, and a different version of the city. Uh, it's almost like we're signing off or something. Yeah, I hear Detroit artists say a similar thing. And the way you've just described Granada Studios, it's like how Juan Atkins speaks about the electrifying mojo, that that kind of ultra-diversity that birthed a generation of open-eared, impressionable, explorative musicians and creatives. But they say the same thing about the the regeneration that's happened since it went bankrupt a few years ago and how there's uh, a dual feeling of both... I guess, acceptance and a bit of relief that maybe ambulance services will reach part of the cities yeah. and their kids might have a better life, but also this this um, wistfulness that what they grew up in and what made it so special and so tight-knit community and what you just described, but when you went there that you saw these people together, the bonds that hold those people together are fraying as Detroit becomes a hip area that maybe resembles like Brooklyn 2.0 and they had this... this this struggle between accepting that things change and not wanting to keep it super rough, but also not wanting to become too shiny. And you have to have that balance. Yeah, because like uh, that, that all plays out in our city as well, because it is actually, um, you know, the homelessness issue in Manchester and the drug problems in Manchester. Um, you trip over on a every, every day, every few hundred yards. I mean, I've, re- I've just spent the weekend in Berlin and you don't get any sense of that there. You know, there's, I mean, there's probably areas of Berlin where it goes on, but, you know, when cities kind of uh, working on a efficient level like that, you know, suddenly your paranoia goes down, you know, but in Manchester is a very, it's a pretty paranoid place, really, you know. And I forget that until you go somewhere else, you know. There's that, there's a, like, you know, a, a joke, you know, an ongoing joke of just, of just like, you can't leave your, you know, I never leave my computer. I've always got my computer attached to my arm the whole time. And people are just like, just leave it. It was like, oh, no, uh, Manchester conditioning, <laughs> I can't leave anything, you know. Uh, it's, a, it's a paranoid place, I think, you know, but a very friendly paranoid place. And a very expanding place. Yeah, now it's becoming uh, very much like every other city on earth. You know, a lot of the, it's about who can afford to live in the city. 
and the people that once lived quite close to the centre, like where you grew up, yeah. was the centre of the city. It's pretty working class sort of community. Yeah. And uh, you could walk into town all the time. You know? yeah, yeah. Town was your playground, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, that was your, your hangout was middle of town. Yeah, and that was, you know, all, all the pubs had that culture that's, that was the opposite of aspirational pubs. It was yeah. like, but, you know, for instance, we'd, uh, what was that? You know, each pub would have like a football team, wouldn't they? Yeah. Like we sponsored uh, one of the teams from your Yeah, pub, local, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, you just, you just get the sense of community is becoming, um, homogenized, you know, and only certain people will be able to afford to live in your city at various points. People are being pushed out. That's going to affect culture. You know, it's going to affect the music gets made in your city. It affects what, what, uh, yeah, it's going to change the way the city exists and it's going to change all the music as well. Yeah. So you're looking for things in your city where interesting, edgy stuff happens and it's kind of moving north in our city. I don't know how it works in other cities, but, you know, if things are moving into north of the city, there's a lot of vape shops. <laughs> just follow the vape shops. <laughs> They're just like in one direction, there's uh, craft bakeries and in the other direction, it's vape shops and that's where the music's going to be. <laughs> I think you've presented a really interesting look at why not only just, you know, you're selling a new record, but also why there's a wider importance in kind of paying respect to the past while also pushing forward to the future. I want to selfishly wrap up on just one thing that strikes me as a big question in your lineage that I really can't make sense of. That At one point you uh, used Pulsar radio signals in recordings, had, Patrick Moore on a xylophone and hanged around a dream video in the telescope. And that's something I've always wanted to know. What? <laughs> How? What happened? Oh, it's just a regular day at 808. <laughs> well, it was uh, a f- one of my teenage friends um, from way back became Terry Wogan's PA. And then, <laughs> and then she got a job being... Brian Cox's media manager and at that point they, uh, Brian Cox was only just you know coming out of uh, the University of Manchester in terms of astrophysics or whatever he does and uh, it was finishing off with D-Ream and it was their last video and, uh, and they managed to blag Jodrell Bank the radio telescope dish uh, for a video and my friend knew that I would, it would be the most exciting thing in the world for me to go up in the dish so this was arranged and uh, from that we, we uh, I got um, recruited for a sixth form drive for UMIS which is the University of Manchester Institute of Science and Technology to recruit sixth formers into signing up so uh, this musical event involved uh, somebody from Tomorrow's World, uh, Patrick Moore, Brian Cox, and it was uh, a musical event where I had to make uh, a piece of music from Pulsar Signals from Jodrell Bank, and Patrick Moore was on his xylophone. <laughs> so, just a typical night out. Graham, Andrew, thank you very much for the time. And everyone listening, if you've made it to the very end of our winding chat, you should go and buy the new record. H2H State, thank you very much. Thank Thank you. you.